This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Bridgeway. It is great to see you here today. My name is Ron, if we haven't had the privilege of meeting yet. I'm grateful that you're here today. If you missed last week, we kicked off a brand new series called No Other Gospel. We're studying the great book of Galatians. We're going to dig in in just a moment. And before we do, I wanted to make just two additional comments. The first, um, I don't know if you realize, but last Friday, we had an incredible event here called Boo Bash. It was our fall family festival, and it was a huge hit. We served over 300 people at this event. The rain stayed away, which was a nice thing. And I just, as your pastor, wanted to say just a sincere thank you for all of you who were involved, all of you came and were a part of that, and especially to our uh, children's ministry director, Christine Cry, and her team. They did an outstanding job. Can you put your hands together and just thank them? So, so good. Also, many of you are aware and you signed up. Uh, we've got a meeting this afternoon, kind of shaping the future of our church, calling it For Our Future, looking at uh, this entire campus, this building, some unfinished space that we have, as well as our 17 acres, and just really leaning into God's wisdom. And we want to do that together as a congregation with our elders, along with uh, our architect. And uh, that's happening today. So just a, a real friendly reminder, if you signed up, uh, be here. We're going to meet right in this room at 4 p.m., Bring a coat. We're actually going to go outside because this isn't just a building. We own an entire campus. We're going to do a little tour of the space. So bring a coat. It's a little fallish outside. If you didn't get a chance to sign up, you meant to, and it closed on you, um, we'd still love to have you. But see me after the service. I want to add your little name to the list as well, and we'd love to have you there. going to be a great day. If you can't make it today, uh, honestly, I would just ask for your prayers. We really, as a leadership, um, really want to get this right. It's an important direction for our future. So, Today, Galatians, if you were here last week, we talked about how Galatians is this incredible word of good news. And it really is good news because it gives us the gospel. And the gospel is all about Jesus. My hope in this series is that you would know the one true gospel, that you would be able to defend it and reject all other forms, all other gospels that are really not gospels at all. They're fakes, they're counterfeits. And they will lead you astray. And again, I want to stress this morning that this gospel, the way you need to hear it is you need to hear it as good news. And I'll tell you, we need good news in our world today. I don't know how else to kind of, you know, portray this, but I look at this word and this is good news, while so much in our world today is bad news. In fact, just for a point of illustration, let me do this. The Bible, good news. I'll just use my phone for a moment and I'll say that a lot of what comes through this not good news, right? Or maybe not the best news. I don't know. Maybe, maybe for you, you go on your phone and, and I don't know, it's just you, right? You, you, you like social media, you go on social media, and you see things that aren't always good news, right? You see things that, I don't know, maybe you see things that it makes kind of this deep sadness inside of you. Or you see someone doing something and you're like, oh, I wish I was doing that. And you have kind of this Maybe this bitterness or this fear of missing out. Maybe you see something going on in someone's life and it, their posts are just constant highlight reels and you're like, wait a minute, I, I know that person and things aren't all going well for them and you kind of feel like this disconnect between the real world and life. The good news in the Bible, maybe not such good news all the time. Maybe you go on your phone and you look at your calendar, right? And you're like, Oh, it's going to be a rough week, got a lot of meetings, got a little difficult things, got, maybe got some travel, maybe got some things 
just hectic with the kids. And you look at your calendar, it's like, ah, it's not good news. I want to remind you, the gospel is good news. Take news, for example. My wife is a bit of a newsie. She's always reading the news, and she seems to know the headlines before I do. And I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's a particular app. Maybe it's CNN or MSN or Fox News. Some of you are like, Pastor, those are trigger words for me, right? Like, I don't know what it is, but you look at the news, and it's like, oh, it's not, it's not the best in our world right now. I get uh, most of my news through kind of an email service, and I got to tell you, this week, uh, just with devastation and just so many things to be concerned about in our world, mass shootings, obviously, and, and just everything, and specific to some of the things I care about in the Christian faith, really really bothered me this week. And so I thought I would just tell you some of the things that came across my news headlines that bothered me. One of the things was the Dove Christian Music Awards. Um, Think about that, Christian Music Awards. And this year it was overshadowed by the headline that I read was that men showed up at the Dove Christian Music Awards wearing dresses. These were Christian performing artists that were supporting uh, the transgender movement. That's kind of what the Dove Christian Music Awards we're known for this year. Or you can look at other things. One of the headlines that came across my phone uh, was from um, this, uh, this news source that said that the fastest growing degree program right now in universities is witchcraft. So when I talk about the good news of the gospel, you need to know there's direct opposition to that in witchcraft. And in fact, a person I really respect, a guy by the name of Al Mohler, talked about how this is starting to spread just like, just like crazy throughout Europe, and you expect to see it here in universities, students being taught witchcraft. And then this last headline, I'm just going to read it to you because I don't know what else to do with it. Um, it says this. It talked about a protest. Pastor welcomes support from Nazi sympathizers at a protest of a local drag queen story hour. Now, how many more things could you fit into one headline, right? Like, like this is disturbing, right? It, apparently, this is real news. I, I can't make this stuff up. Sanford, North Carolina, a yoga studio decided to get a bunch of kids together, invite a bunch of drag queens to read stories to them, and the local pastor, Presbyterian Church, uh, organized a protest, bullhorn and all. And as he's giving this protest to his shock and surprise, he's joined by a bunch of neo-Nazis, right? And they kind of jump in the protest as well. And at some point, I imagine someone had to look at each other and say, wait a minute, shouldn't we be protesting, you protesting us? And it just turned into this massive scene. The cops had to be called. And, and I'll tell you, that's never a good show for the church when the cops have to get called. And this just on and on in our news cycle. And I want to remind you this morning, Paul says that we live in a present evil age. We have a world full of bad news, and yet we have this gospel of grace and good news. And again, my hope is that you would know this good news in the depths of your soul. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take you kind of in a deep dive into the author. I've mentioned him several times, and I want you to see and meet who he is. In fact, he's a guy named Paul. Uh, He's the artist formerly known as Saul. He kind of has a name change that happens with his conversion. And we're going to be in Galatians chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Galatians chapter 1. Make your way there and uh, see these words for yourself. It's in the New Testament. It's towards kind of the back of your Bible. If you hit Revelation, you've gone just a little too far. Kind of preparing for meeting Paul this morning, I want you to think for a moment of maybe 
who the most famous person you've ever met is. Like, if you met, like, a, a famous person, like, maybe, maybe I don't know, a, a sports figure or a celebrity or maybe a politician. I seem like I always miss out on these opportunities. I feel like I've never met anybody famous. But I'll tell you a story about a couple of years ago. I was out in California for my graduation, and we were uh, walking together along the Santa Monica boardwalk, my family and I, and it was just after this really big movie came out, Maverick, right? And uh, we're walking along this boardwalk, kind of just shy of Hollywood, and I'm oblivious. My wife, Sean, is oblivious. I think my son, Braylon, is on his phone. But out of this coffee shop uh, appears this celebrity, not Tom Cruise. I would have recognized him, but his counterpart in the movie, Miles Teller. And my other son, Bryson, who's a bit of a movie nut, knows all the famous actors, especially the young ones. He could tell you every movie Miles Teller has been in. My son, Bryson, locks eyes with Miles Teller. And Miles knows it, and Bryson knows it, and yet Bryson is just, he just lockjaw. Like, he just freezes in the moment. Can't get a word out of his mouth. mouth. And Miles Teller literally walks by. They almost touch shoulders. And he says, hello, and keeps on walking. My son is like, ah, 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 ah. To this day, if you see him, he'll be like, yeah, that was my biggest miss. Like, big miss of opportunity. In fact, Bryson watched what Hotelli went into, and he hung out. He waited by the door, just kind of hoping. Give me another shot at him, right? Never came back out. When you meet this guy, Paul, you need to know that he's kind of like a celebrity in the Roman world, in the Roman Empire. He's as well-known as any other figure in history, but not because he's a good guy. In fact, he's going to use one word to describe himself. It's the word zealous. And the word zealous is not a compliment in the ancient world. And what I want you to see today is you're going to see this guy who's very zealous and uses his zeal to actually persecute Christians. I mean, to the point of death. Paul is this guy who actually is murdering Christians, followers of the way. And he's going to have this transformational experience because of the grace of God. And he's going to go from essentially persecuting to the church to starting and leading the church. And here's the big idea that I want you to take from this message today. With God's help, with God's power, you are free to change. This message today is all about our freedom to change. And I want to get really specific before we read this text this morning. Because I think sometimes in the church and kind of in our Christian faith, we can kind of be general with this. We can say things like, yeah, I'm, I'm free to change from my life of sin. And we never define what that actually means. And true, you are free from your sin. But I want you to be specific this morning. What is it that God needs to free you from? I mean, specifically, like maybe, maybe it's a habit. And you don't have to tell me what it is, but between you and God, you know it's gotten out of control. Maybe it's drinking, maybe it's smoking, maybe it's, it's, it's pornography, maybe it's gossiping, maybe it's something that it's this behavior that's become so much a part of you. Maybe it's, it's anger, and you, you want to be freed from it. You don't want to carry around this anger. I want you to know this morning that you are free to change, that you can change from a life of pride or self-absorption or a life that's destroying itself to a life that is firmly in God's will in God's service, and in God's obedience. It's so important to Paul that he's actually concerned about this church. It's actually a, a bunch of churches in the region of Galatia 
Because what they're doing is they're trading in this freedom for their old way of life. And they're being led astray and they're leaving the church and the faith in droves. And he's calling them back in this freedom. We're going to read Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 24. I'm going to read it all the way through and then we're going to go back and make some observations. So Paul writes this in verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely, here's our word, zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. We're going to come back to that. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, here's his reputation, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Now, this is kind of a, a whopper of a story. You, you would call this his testimony, and actually, Paul is really unique. He gives you his testimony on several occasions, three times in the book of Acts, and then now here, again, in Galatians. Every time he tells it, it's consistent, but he sort of kind of accentuates certain things that he wants you to know, and that's what he's doing here for this church in Galatia. But it's pretty incredible, isn't it? I was kind of astounding to think of this guy's story. He goes from persecutor to pastor, right? I mean, he goes from murdering Christians, followers of the way, to then becoming their shepherd. People don't do this very often, right? They don't, they don't go from wolf to sheep. Like, that just, that just doesn't seem to happen very often. Let me just ask you, what would you do if this was now your pastor? I mean, think about that. What kind of questions would roll through your mind if, if he was your pastor? I mean, think about it for a moment. It, let's just say I wasn't your pastor or I hadn't been your pastor for 20 years or whatever. And then I got hired, right? Like the elders kind of rolled me in here on a Sunday morning and said, meet your new pastor. And, and you had heard some things about me because, well, you know, you got on social media, you looked at my background, and, and you saw some things, and frankly, you had questions, right? Like some things about this guy don't all add up. And I don't know what they were. Maybe, maybe in my former life I had some addictions, maybe... Well, hopefully I didn't kill anyone, right? Like, hopefully I'd you know, probably still be in jail for that, right? But maybe, maybe I stole. Maybe I was a thief, stole from the church. Maybe I, I had been divorced. Maybe I'd committed adultery. And whatever it was, you, you had questions now, right? And you're thinking, is this guy, can I trust this guy? I mean, elders, is this, is this the best you could find? That's what the church was dealing with, with Paul. This guy, this guy used to be violent, the word zealous meant that he was always on the lookout for another follower of the way, a Christian that he could persecute, that he could stone. And he thought he was doing the right thing. This is the problem with following a false gospel. 
it'll lead you down a path where you, you self-encourage, you kind of validate, I'm doing the right thing. Look, in fact, look at his upbringing. Look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, you've heard of my previous way of life, how intensely I persecuted the church. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. He's kind of giving you sort of his like, background. Like, hey, if you look at my education, stellar, right? Like, I mean, it's flawless. In fact, in that day, he was a student in the Jewish system. He would have had a really, really famous rabbi. In fact, Acts, the book of Acts tells you that his rabbi was a guy named Gamaliel, kind of a really well-known guy. And he'd say, hey, I had Gamaliel in my corner. Like, it doesn't get any better than that. My parents put me in the best position they could. I came from a good home. I didn't have any daddy issues. You know, he's like, I had a really good upbringing. And because of that, I was advancing in this Judaism. Whoops, geez, oh, Pete, carpet here. Um, <laughs> advancing in Judaism beyond any of my age. Um, this would have been like I was the cream of the crop. To be sort of at the top of the class, um, you had to do things like know all uh, every word in the first five books in the Bible. So the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He would have known them uh, by heart. In fact, he would have known not only the, the Torah, he would have known each of the 613 laws. He would have known not only the laws, but he would have known his rabbi, Gamaliel's, interpretation of each of those 613 laws. You kind of get this guy's a smarty pants? Um, they would do these tests of the top students. They called it the Ramez. Uh, they would actually, the rabbi would pick a law at random, and he would give like the first the first phrase, the first three words of the law. And then you didn't fill in the blank with the rest of the law. You would actually, a remez was you would, you would skip the rest of that law, you would skip the next law, and then you would give the last few words of the third law. Do you kind of see the Jedi mind trick that was going on with, with Paul and Gamaliel? I mean, he was just, he was impressive. This was the kind of education that would get Paul in any door. It'd be sort of today as if you were to say, you know, I went to Harvard, I went to Stanford, right? Like, it, it was impressive. And he believed that it was his education that gave him this license to persecute the church, to destroy the church. In fact, he talks in this opening section all about himself. I persecuted the church. I was advancing in Judaism. And then things begin to change. He tells kind of the pivotal moment in verse 15 when it all came undone. He says in the next line, he says, but when God, at a seminary professor that would always say, but God, God's but is always bigger than your but, right? You can apply that however you see fit in your life. God's but is bigger than your but. And he said, who set me apart. That's actually three words in English. It's one word in the Greek language. It's the word aphorizo. It's this word that means there was sort of a, an exclusive appointment that was set for him. It's like God had a day on the calendar. And this is where you have to back up to Acts chapter 9. And Paul wasn't Paul. Paul was actually called Saul. And he was on kind of this rampage. He was going from one town, finding out, basically asking, do you believe in Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? Are you a person of the way? And if you said yes, he would gather up people and they would pick up rocks and literally stone you to death. And he was moving from one town to another town, kind of on this journey as Saul. 
And it's like God had the day. He had the set-me-apart moment, his aphorizo, everything lined up. And God from heaven came down in a loud voice and with a bright light and blinded him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And it's interesting, Saul's response in this moment is, who are you, Lord? Like, I know it's not, you know, bad pizza. I know I'm not just having a vision. Like, who are you? Are you my Lord? And it was that moment that changed him. He was blinded, knocked to the ground. Let me just tell you, if, if God has to speak from heaven, shine a light, knock you to the ground, you know, you know you've really been messing up. And that was Saul. He's blinded for three days. He's carried off to a city. And then God uses another person, a guy by the name of Ananias, to come and visit him. And again, Ananias is not thrilled with this job assignment, right? Like, he's heard about Saul. He knows that Saul's a murderer. And he's like, God, you want me to go and pray over him, present the gospel to him? And God's like, just trust me, go. And Ananias, with probably a lot of fear, a lot of shaking and trembling, goes. And he prays over Saul. And it says that, like, scales fell from his eye. He received this gospel good news. And God knows that in that moment, he needs a complete reboot of Saul. In fact, can't even call him Saul anymore. God says, we've got to change your name to Saul. You've got, we've got to change your name to Paul from Saul. And God does this throughout history. In fact, he takes Abram and makes him Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Simon becomes Peter. And it begins this trajectory, this change in him from murderer to now shepherd over God's people. And it's beautiful, and it's incredible. And some of you this morning might be kind of feeling a little skeptical. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Ron. Like, I, I, I thought you said that I am free to change. It seems like when I read and hear this story about Saul to Paul, it seems like God is sort of this puppet that's like pulling all the strings. And it raises kind of the, the question I want to deal with this morning, sort of a question of theology. And that is, well, do, do I have this freedom do I have free will or, or, Ron, are things kind of deterministic, right? You could use big fancy words like determinism or predestination. Am I actually allowed to choose or is God just going to work things out the way he wants? Is it my choice or is it God's force? And this is such a, a fascinating topic. I, I can really only touch on it this morning you could literally fill a library with the number of books that have been written on free will versus determinism. And I think Paul's life actually serves as a great example. Now, it's, it's maybe hard to see because you only know the one way. You only know the way that it worked out, right? You know that his scales fell off and he became this amazing leader, preacher, teacher, and movement maker in uh, the young church at the time. But we don't know what would have happened if, if Paul had rejected what God did, that set-apart moment. God, you know, Paul could have actually said, scales fall off my eyes, and all right, I'm back on the road. Bring me some more Christians, right? And we don't see that in his life. Instead, we see this path of obedience. We see him follow God. We see him become baptized and begin this journey. Here's what I know with absolute certainty. Here's what I know. I know that God is at work way before you and I are at work. And what God is doing is he's sort of like, stacking all of these moments that we've had in life. You could maybe think of it as like a, as a reel of all the things, all the moments that you've had. And, and God just, I feel like, is stacking these up for us. He's been showing us that he's at work in those moments way before we are. In fact, it works that way when we think not just about free will and determinism. If we just think 
about the way in which love works. Love is always a response. In fact, 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. See, he's at work way before we are in love. In fact, you could say that, that God is the initiator of love, and we're learners. We're learning to love. We're learning to respond in love. And when you begin to look at love that way, you can see it in every relationship that gets played out, that, that love is at work because someone must choose to love first. Don't have to love, could reject that love, could turn away from it, could say, I don't want that love. But it always starts that way. In fact, I was doing a wedding Friday night, and there was such a, a tender moment in the wedding uh, for the bride and the groom, and, and they both had stories of just how God had brought them together and difficulties and challenges and, and hurt and brokenness. And, and, and I love that I have the privilege of standing between those moments and hearing the backstories and seeing what God is doing and working and bringing them, this couple, together. And in this wedding, it was no different, although as the two were exchanging their vows, the groom got <clears throat> very choked up. And I could hear it in his voice, but I could also see it because a tear formed in his eye and began to kind of roll down his cheek. And I know in that moment he was realizing that God has been working so hard to bring this moment together out of all the pain, out of all the, all the difficulty, out of the ashes, this birth, this rebirth of this marriage was born. And I could see it in the bride as well. And I just thought, what an amazing God that we have that does this. He first loves us. And then we get to respond with that love. And I think it's important to know that God doesn't just pick you because, well, you know, okay, I've got to, right? Like, it doesn't work like kickball. I'll probably say it a few times. I'm not the most athletic person. I just about tripped over my own feet on the stage a few minutes ago, right? Like, not the most athletic person. Uh, I remember kickball as a kid and uh, always feeling like, you know how kickball works. You got the two captains, right? And they pick the most athletic people first, right? And then I would be somewhere down the line. That's such a terrible feeling. I'll tell you, I do these sort of things all the time where I demonstrate my own ineptness. I was working out with a bunch of friends on Saturday. I picked up this heavy wall ball, threw it up against the wall. Little hint, you're supposed to catch the ball with your hands, right? All ten fingers. I decided to use my lip, right? Like, Right in my big fat lip, got the mark to prove it, right? And I'm so glad that God doesn't say, well, I'll only choose you if you have certain abilities, if you can do certain things, if you can love me in return the way in which I want you to. God looks at each one of us and says, I'm going to give you this opportunity. I'm going to line up the cards. No one can choose God in their own natural power, but God enables and empowers us by his grace to freely turn from sin and to choose his salvation. But you must choose. You must respond. And that's what I believe Paul does in his freedom. He chooses to respond to God. Now, we've only covered three verses, and some of you are getting nervous this morning. So let me, let me shift gears and let me show you how this change actually works, how this freedom to change actually works out in a human being, in their life. And you get it through kind of a strange sort of travel log that Paul gives you. Look at what he says in verses 17 through 19. He gives you all these locations. I did not go to Jerusalem. Instead, I went into Arabia. Then I went to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem. Some of you are like, big deal. Like, I'm reading your travel log. How exciting is it to read someone's, you know, like, uh, airline ticket stubs, right? Like, you know, you know, you flew from Grand Rapids to Atlanta, had a three-hour layover, Atlanta to Seattle, four-hour layover, Seattle to Hawaii. Just 
tell me about Hawaii, right? Like, just tell me about the destination. And what God does is he actually says there's value in the journey. And that's where this after three years is so important in Paul's story, so important in his life. is It's not just about where he got to today, preaching to the Galatians. It's actually the whole journey. And it seems kind of odd, but his journey was very formational by the way in which it says he went to Arabia. Newsflash, Arabia is a desert. Not a lot going on there. The church wasn't even started in that area. This is essentially an assignment for a solitary retreat. What makes Paul so great is he actually, before he got started, he pulled away, spent three full years with God. Now, I'll tell you, I think if he had gone to Jerusalem, like he's kind of defending why he didn't, I think if he had gone to Jerusalem right away, two things would have happened. Uh, One, he would have had a lot of explaining to do, right? I mean, all the Christians, all the pastors there would have been, hey, why have you been killing us? You know, why have you been, you know, had this like bullseye on us? And I think what he would have done is he could have fallen into the trap of what I would call the blame game. Well, you know, it wasn't my fault. I, I grew up in a Jewish home. You know, I had all these Pharisees around me. They were all zealous too. And, you know, it was my parents' fault. It was Gamaliel's fault. It would turn into the blame game. And Paul doesn't do that. The other thing he doesn't do is I think he doesn't rush up to Jerusalem because that's where kind of the, the mainstay of, of Christianity was taking shape. And you see that Paul's mission was very different. He wasn't called to preach in the synagogue. He was called to reach the Gentiles. In fact, that's how you became uh, a Christian as well. It's how you became to know the gospel as well, as he continued to preach to people outside of the faith. Had he just gone up to Jerusalem, I think it would have been like, hey, what's the game plan? How are we reaching people for Christ? And it could have turned very much into just kind of the same game from another person. And maybe he would have even become just sort of like, well, what can I do to please people, tickle ears? And it would have either been blame or people pleasing, and Paul wants nothing to do with that. In fact, if you really want to know how you change, this freedom gets played out in your life when you too choose to go into Arabia, into whatever the desert is in your life to get alone with God. And when you're there, you actually can begin to form this identity, and you can begin to know who you are in Christ. You must get vertical. You must get to a point where you know who you are in Christ. Not just who you are, but whose you are, and that takes solitude. That takes time. Now, some of you are like, well, hey, I I got a job. I got a family. I can't take three years off. You know, I can't just go, you know, travel around the world. You can't, but you can get up every morning, and you can spend time just asking God, hey, form in me this nature, this character, this person of Jesus Christ. And when you begin to do that, you'll begin to get your validation and get your identity in him. I think far too often we seek our identity and our validation in other people, in what they do, in what people think of us, their opinion of us. We might even think we know really well who we are, right? We think, oh, I know who I am. I know my personality type. You know, I've taken a Myers-Briggs or a DISC profile or an Enneagram. And instead what Paul says is, I'm not going to be formed by anyone's opinion I'm going to take this retreat and be formed by God. Isn't that astounding? You are free to change. The God of the universe who does not change can change you exactly the same way he did for Paul. And this is where I want you to bring back to mind the beginning of the message where I challenged you to get very honest with what God needs to change in you. Because we're going to head into a time of communion now, and I want you to bring that before God. See, this time of communion is really a time where we get to experience what God has done. 
his grace and his mercy poured out on you. And no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are free to change. And it doesn't require that you try really hard or believe a certain way, but that you believe that what Jesus Christ has done, he has done for you. So I want to give you an opportunity as Joy and the team join us on stage uh, to lead us in a time of reflection, to receive this gospel grace, and to, re to believe that Jesus has taken your place, to know that you are his and you are called to him, that all of your sin, all of your error, all of your wrong, yours and mine, has been paid for. And the real change isn't thinking from you can do, thinking that you can do anything, but knowing that he has done it all. As a team plays, I just want to give you some space and some quietness to have a conversation with God and to receive this gospel grace, this good news that Jesus died for you. And if you admit that you are a sinner and believe that he is your savior and commit in this moment to follow him, then you are welcome to join us at these tables. I'll often get asked, do I have to be a member of Bridgeway to take communion? Do I have to be a regular attender? And the answer is no, but you must be a member of his family. So I want to pray for you now. And as after I pray, you may come to these tables, take the elements, the bread and the juice, which represent his body and his blood that has been broken and poured out for you. Take them back to your seats, and then you partake when you're ready. And then communion is meant to be worshipped, so do stand after that time and worship with us. If you would bow your heads and pray with me, please. God, it truly is, as we sang earlier, it is amazing grace that you would do for Paul what you are willing to do for every single one of us. It doesn't take a pedigree, an education, a skill set. It takes humility. To say, Jesus, I am a sinner and I'm in need of the rescue and the grace that only flows through you. That is the gospel. It's the same every week. And God, I just want to pray as a community and for everyone from the sound of my voice that if this morning, if all these events of life if all of these moments for many are coming to this one singular moment to hear these words that you too are set apart, that God has a divine date this day on the calendar, that you would know him and receive him and walk in this grace that he so desperately wants you to have. If that's you this morning, you're welcome to respond to say, Jesus, I give you my life. And from this point forward, I want to commit to following you. If that's you this morning, that you are welcome. You're welcome into his family and to partake in this meal of remembrance. God, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, perfect in every way, perfect in his death, a savior in his resurrection, and someone durable that we can follow with all of our lives. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.